It's nice to have some cooler weather, isn't it? Even if it is temporary. I was looking at the forecast and thinking, oh, it's going to be the upper 90s again by the end of the week. <laughs> but it's good, while we, good to have it while we do. I'm going to share something, just a little bit from my personal life. Um, for those of you who don't know me, if you're kind of visiting or you haven't been around a whole lot, my name is Dan, and I'm the transitional lead pastor here at See Me Covenant, and I'm really glad to be here. Um, thank you all for your open arms and welcoming me here. Um, I felt cared for, and I appreciate that. Um, a couple of Fridays ago, uh, my wife Maureen and I had scheduled a time to go out on a date. And, you know, we've got four kids, so going out on a date is not something we do very often. Um, those of you with young kids, you know exactly how that is. It's tough to find time to go out and spend time um, with your spouse. And, you know, we kind of scheduled it far in advance. We got a babysitter and everything was all good until the day before when the babysitter called and said she couldn't make it. Um, and I was like, oh... You know, we were bummed about that, and we'd, it was going to be a time to celebrate. Now, I had survived my first week here. Um, you know, my, my wife had gotten through a, a series of really important ministry meetings uh, for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and that was a big deal for her to kind of have that under her belt. Um, our kids had started their first week of school. Our little one, who's turning two tomorrow, had her first week of preschool. It was, a, it was an exciting time, and we just needed a chance to catch our breath. So it looked like it wasn't going to happen. Um, we were going to pray together and kind of hang out and just be together without the noise. So I just, I, we, what we decided to do instead, well, without her knowing, um, is the boys and I, with three, three older ones are boys, uh, we decided we were going to make a date night at home. And so I employed them as wait staff. Um, they all got dressed up, and, you know, the seven-year-old had his little, you know, the little towel thing over here to do the waiter, and the older two helped me with cooking. And, you know, so this is kind of what we ate. The pictures, okay. oh, right here. We, we started with a seared pear uh, and honeyed, wall, uh, honeyed pecan salad. Uh, yeah, it looked good. And then we had a uh, seared panko and wasabi-crusted mahi-mahi. Um, man, the kids were really into, like, let's try to make this as fancy as possible. And then, you know, we had uh, mixed berries with a, a coconut caramel cream sauce. Um, and it was great. I'm showing you these pictures to make you hungry. Um, but also to point out something, because the food itself, it, I mean, it was fun to make together as a family, but the food really was secondary, right? Because there's something about the family table when we were all together that was special, that we were all participating. You know, the dining table, the dinner table, although sometimes we don't kind of all, you know, our families don't always all congregate around them, our lives are very busy, but that's a precious time. It's a precious time when we can connect with one another and that we can be in relationship with one another. It's, the it's one of the reasons why people go out on meal dates. It's one of those places to connect. It's one of the reasons why in every major holiday, there is usually accompanied with it some sort of ridiculous, ridiculously large feast. 
right? There's far more food than anybody should eat at a given time at Easter or Thanksgiving or Christmas. We just eat and eat and eat. But those are the times when people come together, reforge, renew, affirm, and reconnect with those relationships that matter. Even when people grow apart over time, those holidays can be a really important time to connect the family table it has been this way for millennia across cultures. I do, I, you know, I do my PhD research in China among young people in, in, um, in Beijing, and the same thing. Around the Chinese New Year, that's the time where everybody gathers together and hangs out and reconnects. Across cultures and across time, this is how things have been. Now, last week, we began our look at the parable, what we often call the parable of the prodigal son, usually referring to this wayward child who's kind of gone off the deep end, squandered the family money and everything. And we find that in that story, the father is welcoming that child back to the family table. There's a feast, there's a celebration with the invitation, come on back, come on back. Today, we're going to look at the other child, the older child in the story. And just like we saw last week, we're going to find that once again, God's extravagant love is available to all, to everyone. Before we jump into reading the text again, uh, let me pray for us. Lord, we ask that you would illumine our minds and our hearts as we return to what is for many of us a familiar text, a familiar story. Lord, would you help us to engage with it with our hearts, to identify how we relate to this older child, to be honest with ourselves, and then to come to you, the one who offers us extravagant love. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Through the story of the older son, the older child in this parable, we're going to find that the invitation that is given to the younger child is also given to the older one. And this is significant for us because I'm going to guess that many of you, myself included, identify a little bit more with the older one. Let's pick up the passage in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 25. So this is after the story has kind of taken place. The younger brother who kind of wasted the money, kind of was insulting to his family, took the money, wasted it in extravagant living, has come back. And even before he can really kind of get into it, the father runs out and welcomes this son back and says, come on in, you know, puts the robe around him, gets the ring, throws a party. Meanwhile, the text begins, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, ha- he has him back safe and sound. Mm. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. He refused to participate at the family table. So his father went out, again, went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. 
Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father says, here we go. My son, the father says, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. An invitation is given in this passage to the older son to come inside. Come in. Take your place at the family table. But to understand this invitation and how this invitation applies to you and I, we need to observe a few things about this older son. And the first one is this. The older son has separated himself from his family. This is exactly the first, same first point as last week. He separated himself from the family. This guy's done it too. How do we find that in this text? Well, first of all, he points out this is like your deal. You, you did this. You did this. I've been doing this, and you're doing this. And then he has the audacity to call his brother that son of yours. He doesn't say, my brother, He doesn't say that. He says, oh, that son of yours. He has effectively, by his language, indicated that he has separated himself from the family. He is no longer maintaining that relationship and not willing to let that other one back into the picture. He has separated himself. This is the kind of guy who has been doing church for a very long time has always pitched in, has always worked hard, but when it comes down to it, maybe has gotten so focused on the tasks of doing church, of acting Christianly, that perhaps he's forgotten to nurture and cultivate the love and the knowledge of God. It's like you get distracted by the thing that's, kind of close to the main thing, but not the main thing. I mean, it's important for us to live right. It's important for us to do the things that are of the kingdom and do the things of the church that need to be done. But when we lose our focus and focus on those things, then we just miss the point. It it reminds me of when sometimes, particularly those of us who are younger, we go to the beach and we see a nice, beautiful sunset. You know, we go to the beach, there's the sun, is about to come out, and then what happens? Instead of just sitting there, we break out our phones. And we start recording it, or taking little pictures. You know, I'm guilty of this too, I've done it, I've been like this. And I'm experiencing a sunset through a little screen. So that I can record it, and I can watch it later. Except watching it later is not the same. I mean, it's on a small screen, the resolution isn't necessarily, like, lifelike, You don't have the experience of the sand in my toes, the smell of the ocean breeze, the, you know, the sounds of the seagulls, and if they're going overhead, you know, having to duck in case, you know, you don't want to get hit. And, but that's all part of the experience of going to the beach and experiencing a sunset. But sometimes I get distracted because I want to capture it. And so I just look at it through here. 
Somehow, I, when doing that, I've separated myself from the experience. I've separated myself from what really was meant to be experienced there. And that's what's going on with this older child. He has separated himself from what really matters in this family. He has removed himself from intimacy. You just look at that language, the way he's talking to his father. There does not seem to be a closeness there at all. He has separated himself from his family. And the second observation that we can make here is this, that he just does not understand his father. Because he has become distant from the family or because he's focused on the work of the family, he's out there in the fields doing the right thing, he simply cannot comprehend what his father has done. He cannot understand the generosity, the lavish and extravagant love that the father is exhibiting in the story. He cannot understand it even though he has himself been a recipient of that self-giving, sacrificial love. What do I mean by that? Notice in verse 31, he says, the father tells him, everything I have is yours. This is not a figurative or rhetorical statement. It is literal. Because if you remember back in verse 12, the parable begins in the story, it says, so he divided his property between them. Both of them received the inheritance. The younger one took one-third, probably, based on how things were customarily back then. And the older one took two-thirds. At the expense of their father's honor and standing in the community who no longer owned anything. The older son owned it all. Everything I have is yours. Really, it is. It's yours. You have it all already. I've given everything to you. He who has received so much was not willing to extend the grace because he just did not understand it. He didn't understand the depth of grace because he just could not understand his father. And here he is complaining, displeased with his father's lavish love, seemingly looking at his father and seeming wasteful forgiveness. There's no call to justice here. How are you going to repay the family, younger brother? Maybe he wants to see that happen. Maybe he's looking at his younger brother and says, you've brought shame upon us all. This is not what I was looking for, even though I did benefit from it. This isn't what I was looking for. There's a famous painting. It's hard to see with this lighting, but there's a famous painting that Rembrandt had done depicting this very scene where the father is hugging the son who had wandered off and has finally come back. And off in the shadows, we don't really know who all the people are, but some art historians wonder if one of the faces, I'm going to use the laser right there, you can see it on that right there, face right there, or over here, is a man watching from behind in the shadows, with, not with a look of pleasure, but just kind of like, what is going on? The older son is looking on, 
not understanding what is happening because somehow in all the busyness of living rightly, of doing the right things, his eye has turned towards the things and not the relationship, the deeds and not the connection and the grace. There's a poem that I came across recently that I want to share with you uh, that deals with this a little bit. I was shocked, confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door, not by the beauty of it all, nor the lights or its decor. It was the folks in heaven who made me sputter and gasp, the thieves, the liars, the sinners, the alcoholics, the trash. There stood the kid from seventh grade who swiped my lunch money twice. Next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. Herb, who I always thought was rotting away in hell, was sitting pretty on cloud nine, looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus. What's the deal? I would love to hear your take. How did all these sinners get up here? God must have made a mistake. And why is everyone so quiet, so somber? Give me a clue. Hush, child, he said. They're all in shock at the thought of seeing you. (laughs) The older child in the parable, in his self-righteousness, loses the fact that he is as wayward as his younger brother. He has separated himself, even by doing all the right things. His heart and mind were not in the right place. He had received so much, and it was modeled to him by his father, but he forgot it or chose not to accept it. Instead, he became indignant because his understanding of justice demanded a different response toward his brother. He could not understand the depths of grace, of forgiveness that was his father's way of doing things. And if he had been a part of this family and connected and learning in a love relationship with his parent, he probably would have caught on. This is what our family is about. Miroslav Volf, in his book, Free of Charge, writes this, Forgiveness mirrors the generosity of God whose ultimate goal is neither to satisfy injured pride nor to justly apportion reward and punishment, but to free sinful humanity from evil and thereby reestablish communion, welcoming people back to the family table. Reestablish communion with us. This is the gospel in its stark simplicity. It is the communion, the connection, the relationship that God seeks. It is the relationship that is restored that we, re- that we celebrate. And this, friends, is too often what longtime Christians lose sight of. Why sometimes churches that have labored for a long time can lose sight of what's important. We can get caught up in debating ministries and programs and what should be happening how and in what way and in what manner and, you know, all these sorts of things. But if it's not done within the context of saying, this is what we are about, 
We are about Christ's mission. We are about extending the extravagant love of God to others. If we lose sight of that, then all the programs that we can pursue, all the plans that we can make, all of the things that we can be so excited about in the Christian faith, they become almost meaningless because we lose sight of the communion that we are intending to have with our Father in heaven. And this is the invitation that is given to all of us, not to get distracted, but to come back in and to acknowledge, to admit the ways in which we as individuals or we as a church have at times strayed in our vision, where we have lost sight of that extravagant love and started focusing on other things. When we see someone who comes into the doors wearing rags, how sometimes in our minds we think they should have dressed better. How sometimes we come to somebody who has gone through some really difficult times and is maybe still struggling with things like alcoholism or addiction or struggles with pornography and other kinds of issues, and we look at them with a look of disdain rather than saying to them, God loves you. Come inside. Come to the table and receive the love of God. When we are like the older brother, we become self-righteous. We think of ourselves as so good just like this guy but we have missed the mark and we are just as wayward when we do such things and take such an attitude. But the good news is this. For people like us, for people like me, for people like the older brother in this story, the invitation is the same. He is invited back to the table. So the father goes out and pleads with him. We don't have the text of the words of what happens there, but I imagine the father saying to the older son, come on inside. We have something good here. Let's celebrate together. Come and understand what our family is about. This invitation is given to you and I. The invitation is for all of us to come and find that God's love is extravagant, is lavish, even wasteful, if you were to look at it one way, and that it is extended to all of us, whether we are like the younger or the older child. Today, we are going to be participating in a practice that we call communion, some churches call it the Lord's table, Lord's supper, or the Eucharist. It is an invitation to a table, to the family table, where we remember that no matter who we are or where we've been, even in our own self-righteousness, the invitation is given to all of us to come and find that the Lord is good. Perhaps you are like the younger child, and you find your heart wandering and focused really more on your own pleasures and joys than focusing on what the kingdom of God is about. Or maybe you are like the older son who is self-righteous or just simply gets caught up in the work of doing good that we lose sight of that relationship with God. Whatever the case may be, you are welcome to the table. We each come with different baggage, don't we? 
man, my, my, if I, you know, put my baggage in a suitcase, I wouldn't be able to fly without paying a bunch of extra fees, right? Because it would just be bag after bag after bag. But the beauty of the gospel is that all of us can come. Come and see that the Lord is good. Come to the table and find grace and forgiveness. Before we move into our time of communion, I'd like for us to spend a little bit of time in confession. With these things in mind, in what way are you and I like either the younger or the older child? For our time of confession, we will read together first, and there'll be a time for silent confession, but we'll read this confession together. Read with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Please take a moment for silent and personal confession. <laughs> 